The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. podcast i'm max george and i'm nathaniel darkesh and we don't have an intro quote today because we have two incredible fantastic phenomenal horror guests today that's right um we have uh rebecca klingle and jamie flanagan uh which uh we'll let them introduce themselves uh because i don't think i can you know do that adequately uh, who wants to go first? Uh, Becca, after you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jamie Flanagan, also a, a TV screen writer. Uh, yeah, big fan of horror, and uh, just really happy to be here today. We awesome, are. Awesome beyond honored to have both of you here we are very familiar with some of your work and as a a little horror podcast that just started as two best friends wanting to nerd out about horror to have you two as guests is like peak accomplishments here so thank you so much (laughs) thank you guys that's so sweet yeah Uh, yeah, I think it was, uh, 
I think it was probably like um, Saturday Night Nick, Snick, you know? Uh, ah, yeah, Snick. The, I haven't had to think about Snick for far too long. Right? So, yeah, Nickelodeon had that that late night, not late night, but night-ish show for kids that was kind of scary, and they had a big orange couch for it, and they had Are You Afraid of the Dark, <laughs> yeah. um, which I, so I certainly had, was traumatized by. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, other than that, you know, uh, I caught, like, you know, Jaws, of course, uh, and... Uh, and, and, and I remember seeing like a few minutes of the first troll movie on TV and just being like so afraid of the creature. I never saw the whole the whole film to this day. I have not seen the whole film, but that uh, the image of it really stuck with me. So if you chase it down with Troll 2, then you won't be afraid ever. I have seen Troll 2 and I've seen the documentary about Troll 2, which was delightful. That's an underrated film. That first troll film had some great and practical effects. It, it was pretty spooky. Or uh, if you want to go like really specific, earnest, scared, stupid. Yeah. The the troll like catches up to you and what turns you into a small little wooden person, right? Isn't that isn't that yes. yeah, it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, even with like Jim Carney doing his, you know, earnest shtick, it's yeah. still horrifying. <laughs> like and I, I love Ernest. Like Ernest Goes to Camp was you know one of my favorites as a kid. Favorite three. Yeah. Becca, do you, do you want to pick up or do you want me to, to dive right in? <laughs> um, and and be, yeah. be free with this, because when people find out I'm a horror podcaster, they ask me my favorite, and then I proceed to give them a list of like 10. So gotcha. I understand it's difficult. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I'd probably start with uh, Tale of Two Sisters, uh, the Korean horror film. My brother turned me on to that one, and uh, I've I've admired it ever since. Uh, the the cinematography of it, the the waltz that is the score, the performances, the uh, the intimate nature of the, you know it's, it all takes place in one house. It's 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 really something. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend giving it a watch. Then after that, for books, um, probably Annihilation. Uh, is my favorite horror book because it's so intimate in, in, in first person and it's it's sort of like at walden's pond meets reanimator which something about that melancholy and that attachment to nature juxtaposed against this these horrible transformations that the the protagonist doesn't view as horrible right like ghost bird in the book um she is very zen about the whole thing from page one which you, you don't get as much of in the film. They kind of gave that to Tessa Thompson's character. Uh, and I love the film, too, as its own beast. Um, but that book um, uh, moves me every time I read it, and I, I do read it often for comfort. Um, third, uh, yeah, I'll just go with House of Leaves for now, uh, just because it's... Yeah! Uh, 
incredible. Oh boy, you have awakened a beast, Jamie. Oh no. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I'll yeah. just say that I also love House of Leaves. It's pretty great. Um, everybody's experience with reading that book is a little different, right? Depending on what your uh, what your appetite is for footnotes that lead to footnotes that lead to footnotes. So it's it's a you know it's a book about. It's a book about an unknowable labyrinth that is designed as an unknowable labyrinth. And um, yeah, you know, I just, I found it to be, again, really moving towards the end when it all boiled down to, you know, just a, a troubled marriage. Um, yeah. I am a, a project manager uh, by trade. And so the footnote on footnote on footnote on footnote is like the third, third level of me when it comes to stuff like that. It's just, <laughs> Labyrinthage is perfect for that book. It's crazy. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm curious before we we move over to you, Rebecca, on on your favorites. Um, have you read the uh, screenplays that he wrote for uh, adapting it to a TV? You know, I haven't. Um, uh, was it Mark Danieluski? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't. I haven't read the screenplays of it. Um, obviously I've, I've had my own fantasies about making like the Navidson record and just isolating that and making that into a, making that into either like a two to three hour feature or stretching it into like a six to seven hour limited series. Um, I'm sure that whatever he came up with is, is infinitely better than whatever I could just because uh, he has a way of nesting these, these stories within stories, right? Like the Zampano lair versus the Johnny Truant lair versus uh, the Navidson record. Um, so yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to see how he managed that juggling act uh, in a visual medium, as opposed to uh, the book where you actually have agency as to where you go. Um, yeah. So yeah, how did he, how did he navigate that? In he screenplay? went one layer out further and made it, basically that all of these records are like exist in in a film form and then it's you know basically about some people having it on this like impossibly large hard drive and other people are trying to get it and it's uh it's so convoluted but perfect um <laughs> i i can't do it justice um oh cool let's just say he added even more layers and I don't know how he did it, but it was brilliant. Um, but unfortunately, he only wrote three episodes. And so I didn't get any, you know, satisfying endings. But uh, yeah, he just has them like uh, for like five bucks on his website. So definitely worth checking out. Interesting. Yeah. All right, but, Jamie. Uh, how about you? What's some of your favorite? Or Rebecca. Oh, my gosh, Rebecca. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, I, I have such a such a hard question. Um, I'm. Can I just submit a year of horror movies? I will say 1999 horror was such a definitive year for horror. You've had Stir of Echoes, Blair Witch, like House on Haunted Hill. Um, I think Sixth Sense was that year. Like horror was great in 1999. And a lot of those are on my top favorite movies. Like Haunting, um, House on Haunted Hill was one of the scariest movies I'd seen at the time. I thought that thing was terrifying. But the scariest piece of media I think I've ever kind of indulged in for some reason it's probably pt um the oh yeah yeah yes oh wow the abandoned silent hill uh, yes mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. yes the, the potential of that yes I, that is one of the scariest kind of things that i have ever watched and i'm just watching somebody else play it on on you know youtube or something but i thought pt is freaking terrifying mm. yeah it is pure nightmare fuel um 
still angry to this day that they didn't get to make their Silent Hill game. Yeah, I, yeah. I probably would have played it. Like, I love horror video games. I don't know, you know, I, I'm always looking for, um, like, recommendations for those. I've, I've started two recently that are really fun. Um, yeah. If you've ever heard of Until Dawn. Uh, yeah. same, I have played same, that. I love Until Dawn. The same developers made a new one called The Quarry, and it's all about a summer camp, which is great. Ooh. Um, and then I just got on sale one called Outlast. <gasps> yeah, those are fun. Oh, <laughs> I've screamed three times just today. It's, you know, it's, I'm oh, spooky. I'm a total yeah. wimp when it comes to, to actually playing uh, scary games. I love, I love them. It's just that, that having that level of agency and knowing that if my character dies, it's on me. It's too much responsibility. So I, I tend to watch Let's Plays. And so I watch like Amnesia, Amnesia Dark Descent, uh, Machine for Pigs, all those things on, on YouTube playthroughs because I'm too scared to hold the lantern and uh, dodge madness myself. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, like Outlast is freaking intense. Outlast is... Whew, it's yeah. a lot. I crawled in a vent today and it was dark and I had to turn on like my little nightlight camcorder and that's when I was just like, I can't. I can't right now. It's just Wednesday. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The brilliance is that that yeah, you're like, you know, having to use a camcorder as a way to navigate the world and it's oh it's a lot, especially when you have to go find batteries or you will just be running around blind. It's so much scarier when you when you're playing it when you have like agency and you're responsible for your character. Like yeah. even back in the day, Seventh Guest was like a like a computer oh, game wow. that used to be really scary when I was a kid. Man, yeah, Seventh Guest is yeah. is a classic. There's another one that um, Six Days a Stranger. Uh, you can find that one downloadable online. That's that's pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, horror in games is is such a it's such a rich medium for it. Um, yeah, and while you know we're talking about like. Hideo Kojima and Guillermo del Toro and you know uh, they didn't quite go through with DP or, or PT rather uh, Death Stranding um, mm. that they did end up going forward with is is pretty lovely it's like a Tarkovsky film with these kind of crazy stealth horror elements with the kind of you know bonkers over the top cutscenes and new vernacular and that you need kind of a, a dictionary nearby and an encyclopedia to decipher uh but yeah i, I adore uh, games as a medium for horror and storytelling in general yeah i think it's yeah. an untapped kind of genre as well i mean you have your big named games of course resident evil silent hill and all of that um, but this outlast outlast excuse me was just completely off my radar, I found it because I needed scary music for a Dungeons and Dragons game. Oh wow! And I just yeah. happened on this music, and I was like, "Wow, this this is great! What game does this come from?" And twenty dollars later, here I am. <laughs> yeah, if you guys are looking for two really simple ones, uh, by simple, I, I, I suppose that's the wrong word. Two uh, horror games where less is more. Uh, Little Nightmares and Little Nightmares Two taken together are a gorgeous uh, minimalist examination of uh, childhood trauma. Go for it; it's great. Because I always need to relive my childhood trauma. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I was going to also just mention one that I played that I just haven't seen like really come up on any list or anything, but it's called Soma, S-O-M-A. Yeah. And oh, man. That's, that's also Chinese Room, I think. 
or no, 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 no. It's it's uh, it's the am- or is it the Amnesia guys? Um, yeah, it's, it's the Amnesia guys. Yeah, I, I played the version of that where you could make it so that the monsters can't hurt you. That was the only one of those games I could play. <laughs> was the, the okay. yeah the console release gave gave you an option to make the monsters non lethal. They just look scary, and that was enough. I was still freaked out the whole time. Yeah, I mean, even looking at them makes your character like the the screen glitch out. So. Yeah, that story is really interesting, and it has kind of like, um, you know, I, I have no mouth and I must scream vibes going on the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of body horror and future AI, and uh, it's, it's, it's really dark. And tons of existential dread once you realize implications of things. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, circling back to kind of your guys' introduction here, uh, we really want to dive into a lot of the stuff that you have worked on. Do you want to give us just a brief resume of of shows and and stuff you've been able to write for? Yeah, Becca, you want to you want to dive in? Uh, well, sure. I'll kick it off. Um, I uh, I wrote on uh, the Haunting of Hill House um, and its sister show, The Haunting of Blind Manor, uh, and uh, the Fall of the House of Usher, which is currently in production. Um, I have a, a horror podcast called Baraska, which started as a um, short story that I posted online. Um, and I just, uh, uh, po- another podcast I worked on called um, Batman Unburied just came out a few months ago. Um, yeah, I think, I'm, I don't know if I'm missing something. I feel like that's everything at the moment. <laughs> Jamie? Yeah, uh, I uh, didn't write on Hill House. I started with uh, Becca on uh, The Haunting of Blind Manor. Um, and then went on to write for uh, Midnight Mass, and then to write on uh, The Midnight Club, then The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, and uh, currently I'm in Vancouver for production of an episode of Creepshow that I wrote. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a crazy journey. Uh, and, and also you, you have done uh, some acting as well, is that right, Jamie? <laughs> if you want to call it that, I I appear in some of these series as as kind of a uh, a Flanagan family Easter egg. I wouldn't really call what I do. Oh, acting. you're more than um, Easter egg. Oh, thank you so much. It's very kind. Uh, yeah, I, I pop up, and if you're if you're in the know and you you kind of know what you're looking for, you, you can spot me in a lot of these things. Uh, usually playing kind of like small, uh, fun little roles, um, which started in uh, wow, it started in like oculus as a ghoul and then like <laughs> and then hill house and then dr sleep and then um i'm i'm in midnight club uh in, a, in an episode that i wrote which is kind of cool um uh but yeah you know I, I pop up in these things i'm in like five seconds of gerald's game as well um it's really weird and i'm gonna cut uh, a deleted ending from ouija origins of evil where i tried to play a cop and it was not convincing at all yeah i tried to play like a police officer and uh, we looked at them and we're like no no it's not gonna no <laughs> well i mean you know it's it's still something i mean you're in some of my favorite horror stuff ever so you know oh cool yeah i'm, I'm you know, put some on me on that <laughs> As someone who dreamed of growing up and being a director, like you have done what I, my 14 year old self wanted to do. That's incredible. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, you know, now let's yeah, kind of dive into just, you know, some of like the, the process of like writing horror and like collaboration and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I guess, you know, what is the, the draw to, to writing horror or creating horror and then, you know, kind of like, 
why did you specifically, you know, start working on a lot of like horror projects? Uh, well, for me, I started writing um, horror um, in my 20s. And uh, I don't really know what prompted it other than I like, I wanted to write short stories, something I could do when I was bored at work online and post them on Reddit. And horror, I feel like is such a good um, genre for, um, for really short stories. Because what do you need? If you don't have enough time to do any character work, all you need is a good twist. And people are going to be like, damn, that's a great story. And there's just something about like the twist, like the bottom dropping out of your stomach that I think is just so attractive about horror. I love that feeling. It's kind of like that. How can you feel happy if you don't feel sad? It's like, how can you feel warm and comfortable if you've never been terrified? You know, um, so I, that's really when I started writing horror and kind of um, had had a couple online go viral and um, Mike Flanagan um, had optioned a couple of them uh, for his, uh, for a company he was working with, Intrepid, maybe, is that his company? I'm not exactly yeah, sure yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, you got it. It is his company, okay, for his company. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he called me one day, and I thought it, um, that he wanted to talk about the option, but he, he said, hey, I uh, got a, a show at Netflix, do you want to come out and write it with me? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go home and pack and move to California, because we're going to do this. Um, and it was, it was great, and I haven't really backed off, you know, I, I like horror because it's such a great way to, like, as a, a, a metaphor for, like, certain um, parts of humanity, I think that horror works really well to to look at yourself like, I don't know, I, I, I wish this was coming out way more elo eloquent, but it's like, hey, this is such a long day. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'll let Davey go. <laughs> Sure. No, I, mean, I, I think it's very eloquent, and I, I totally agree. Yeah, and to, plus, plus that's and, what the revision process is for with writing, right? That that that's that's the benefit as as yes. writers. Nathaniel yeah. and I have talked quite a bit about how horror is this really awesome way to to have a cathartic moment. You know, there's all of these very terrifying scenes and moments, and and all of this craziness, but there's a lot of relief and positivity kind of behind the the scare uh so i i really resonate with what you said there yeah yeah or it can be beautiful whether the academy believes that not or not it's still up to debate <laughs> i mean parasite won a few years ago and that was very that was at least uh in, encouraging yeah true yeah. true jamie how about you though uh, yeah, you know, I, I think my brother had gotten me into Stephen King at a pretty young age. And so I, I read a lot, mostly his, his short story compilations. Um, and from there, kind of moved on to Neil Gaiman and Dan Simmons. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I really loved those books. Um, I went to college for theater. And uh, as a theater person, you, you end up traveling around a lot. I ended up doing like two uh, youth theater tours you know which with the kennedy center which kind of bouncy around the usa and all you really have is you know the bookstores that you would uh, end up between city to city um and so yeah you know i did a lot of reading for free in bookstores and um horror was my go-to because it was just such a a visceral escape um, and the characters were usually going through something that was you know really immediate and um and true and the horror for the most part, from you know, from what I read, usually ended up having a, a deeper meaning, especially in, in King and Gaiman's work. Um, 
Yeah, you know, and I think Becca really touched on this, that cycle of tension and relief um, is really cathartic and <laughs> being able to engage with that. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I, um, I had gone back to school in my 30s after doing the theater thing and bartending and trying to make rent and uh, went back to school for medical stuff, ended up being an ultrasound technologist. And um, while I was doing like A&P and stuff for that to stay sane, I took a creative writing course and um, most of it was genre focused. And uh, yeah, you know, one of the writing prompts was take a couple of side characters from a classic story and uh, give them a story of their own kind of, uh, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead kind of in, in that kind of way. And I ended up writing a, um, a really brief piece of flash fiction about the brides of Dracula, which then um, I expanded into a screenplay that I wrote between patients. And, uh, and then I just got really tired of working in medical and I <laughs> sent that and an adaptation of, uh, of Jeff Vandermeer's Venice Underground that I had written to uh, my brother and to his producer, Trevor Macy, and was like, hey guys, uh, is this good enough to get me into a room? And uh, they were very kind and they pulled me into Bly. So uh, uh, a little bit of elbow grease and a healthy amount of nepotism, I have to admit, but I <laughs> got there and I haven't shit the bed hard enough to have been kicked out yet. So that's all good. <laughs> that's awesome. Now you have a stoker in your... Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, it's nice to share that with Mike, you know, and and Jeff Howard, and um, you know, the my only caveat on that is that uh, there were so many great writers on that show, from Gabe Hobson, Jeff Howard, um, Joyce Sherry, Elon Gale, Teresa Sutherland, uh, Danny Parker. Just like yeah, you know, it's, it 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 takes a village to get these stories to where they need to be, and at the end of the day, sometimes credits, you know. They're kind of doled out by WGA arbitration, and they don't really tell the whole story. Uh, so I always like to shout them out when I can. Thank you. And and actually, that that transitions really well into kind of my next question of of like, what is the collaborative process like? You know, I I'm a just you know sit in a, a room and write a horror story kind of guy, and so you know I've never really engaged in in something that is as collaborative as you know writing for television you know, with other writers and other creatives being involved. So can you just share a little bit more about kind of that process of, of being in a writer's room and having to, you know, juggle so many uh, creative talents all at once? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really about the, the room that you built with, with almost no exception. I've uh, been lucky enough to be in great rooms with like great writers who um, just want like the best story told. What's nice about it is that you, you know, you, you know, when you're into when you're developing your own story to write later, you write your ideas down or maybe you maybe you're an outliner. It's, it's like all about your process, but you have other people to be like, what about this? And then you don't have to throw it away immediately if you can't make it work. It can bounce around other people and um, kind of like hone it like a diamond from there. Or, you know, you toss it out, but it's like, I see what you're getting at there. What if we do this? So it really mo mostly it just feels like you're getting the best ideas um, and it's it's you know, it's a, it's a democracy for the most part. Of course, the showrunner chooses what, what gets um, put in the outline, but um, it's, it's an experience unlike I'd ever had before, because like you writing has always been such a solo process for me. And it was interesting, you know, when you're right, there's so much of yourself that comes out onto the page, whether you intend it to or not. So it's 
almost like a therapy <laughs> in some ways. Like people tell really traumatic stories um, in, a, in a writer's room, especially in like these these horror rooms that I've been into. Like, what are we trying to get at? What's the human piece of this? Like, what, um, where are we trying to get them and how do we get there? And what would that feel like kind of thing? So you get end up getting pretty close to a lot of the people you work with because you're you're pretty open, torn wide open when you're in there. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, Bly Manor is a great example of that because I think there were like, what, eight of us and we all brought the collective weight of all of our relationship baggage to that yes. show. <laughs> uh, that show is is basically, it's the works of Henry James wrapped around all of our shit. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, you know, there's there's the good, the bad, the ugly in there of, of any kind of relationships we've either been a part of or witnessed between all of us. And, you know, I think we all had moments that we really fell into deeply and uh, and were able to kind of bounce off of each other to sort of unpack our life stuff a little bit more objectively. I don't know. It's weird. Um, but it was yeah. great. Yeah. And there's that kind of leads me into a question. Oh, oh go ahead, Rebecca. I was just saying, sometimes um, uh, you'll tell an anecdote and that and it's like, okay, we're going to take that, rip it exactly and put it in. If that happened to both you and I, Jamie, on Bly, is like we told a story and they're like, we're going to put that literally in the show. Yeah. And that's interesting. There's something cathartic about that too. Absolutely. I, I brought in an old essay that I had written back when I lived in New York about a mouse and a glue trap that made it word for word into episode five. <laughs> uh, so when you, get to the, when you get to the mouse and the glue trap that's used for, it uses, it uses a metaphor for toxic relationships that you get stuck in. Uh, yeah, that's that was all about a mouse that I found in a glue trap that had gnawed off its own foot, crawled into the next trap in my apartment in New York. I had to bludgeon it with a phone book, and it was the worst day ever. Oh, made me feel so sad. Yeah, yeah that, that escalated and did not stop. Yeah, and I think it's Hannah Gross has it in the... Um, yeah, yeah, Hannah Gross has it, in the, and it couldn't, couldn't have come out of a, a more appropriate character or a better actor. Like... Uh, Tania is amazing and just just killed it. Um, but yeah, it was it was so interesting to see that bit get in there whole. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, Becca, what was what was your your story that made it in there? I, I've forgotten. Um, it's been a while. Mine was the story I was telling about when I when my cousins were babysitting when I when we were kids and we had put like my brother's um, army things down the the laundry chute. <gasps> right. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, so that's that's the doll that lands down the chute and lands yes. the uh, lands on its feet. That was the scariest yes. thing we could yes, come up exactly. with. <laughs> Not a meaningful monologue, just like a little bit of a jump scare, but whatever. Still, it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's it was it's a great moment, and, and that even yeah. ties into your origins of you know the the Chucky stuff with, with it being a doll. So, oh. oh man, I hate dolls, and I love them. I love the things I hate. <laughs> I love the things I fear. That's why probably I'm a horror writer. <laughs> well, th that kind of leads me to my question I wanted to ask is you guys talk a lot about the, the trauma coming out in the writer's room as you're collaborating on all of this. But what are your fears that play a prominent role in your ideas and your writing? Do they help enhance your stories or do they sometimes get in the way? Um, you know, first and foremost, it, you need to know the story that you're setting out to tell. So for, for Bly Manor in particular, we knew from day one that this is a doomed love story between uh, two people. We kind of knew that going in, uh, that, that this Danny and Jamie relationship is kind of what this whole thing is about, and uh, it's going to end tragically. Um, 
But in terms of how it gets there, that's kind of where you really get to unpack your stuff. And you, I think you kind of sift through your life and, you know, let the things that don't apply to this fall away and then just dig for the nugget of the thing that you've experienced that, that does apply. And then uh, hold it out to the room and hope it has value or, or somebody else can see like um, a shape that it could take that, that could be additive, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for me, I, I have tons of fears. One of my big ones, though, is like being alone or disconnected from humanity in general, oh. um, which I think we can all relate to after the pandemic, those of us especially who spent it alone or with our dogs. Um, but I, I write a lot of horror, a lot of horror that takes place out in the woods in like a cabin or camping or driving or hiking or stuff like that, because I, I find that to be scary. So it it really helps me tap into, um, you know, the, like, what is scary about it and how can I amp that up for readers or viewers? Um, Jamie and I wrote a, a screenplay together about a, um, a, uh, two ghosts in in the woods, and one of them, her death had been that she wandered away from her family, and she went too far, and she got lost and just died of the elements, and like that was her tragic story. And it's it's a it's a, not a an uncommon thing that happens, but that is just kind of like even if there's nothing after you, so to speak, it's a it's a terrible terrifying way to die, like completely alone and disconnected from every everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that the best stories are companions for loneliness, you know, Um, I I consider every episode of Doctor Who to be a companion for loneliness. Um, But um, yeah, you know, it's uh, I share that fear with you, Rebecca. Absolutely. Um, uh, Just disconnection and, you know, uh, also just the the paranoia. And I, I bring this one up all the time, you know, because horror is is questions, but horror is also the assumption of an answer right it's a uh, if the question is what's in the dark it's the thing that we assume that scares the shit out of us not just the question and with horror when you bring it down to character um that question can be as simple as what does the person sitting across from me think of me and then the assumption is they think i am a monster that is horror um so yeah you know it's 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 weird. All of it is personal, right? It's all, it's all our neuroses. Um, yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. If it isn't, then it's you know, then it's a different kind of horror, I suppose. You know, it's more monster-driven. You know, the shark and Jaws doesn't really have much subtext, but it's terrifying. So yeah, no, there's room for everything. But um, yeah. yeah, I guess it's just the stuff that Becca and I tend to work on tends to be a lot more uh, emotionally rooted in the fear of solitude. Um, That's probably true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's, you know, definitely something I, I've seen even with some of my own writing. I'm working on a piece right now that is related to, like, the, the fear of uh, dementia and forgetting, you know, who you are and, and all of that. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, just, like, seeing that, you know, <clears throat> kind of, you know, cathartic thing of, like, this is something I fear because I've had it in my life recently and all that kind of stuff is really interesting to see how, you know, the things that make it onto the page that I don't expect to. So yeah, it's, it's really, you know, I, I think a lot of times, you know, people are, oh, you write horror. Oh, you must be a, a twisted person. It's like, no, actually I get a lot of therapy from my writing. Right. You write, you write it because you're trying to understand it. It's like, you're trying to come at it in different ways. I think, and I, I think it's the same reason why a lot of women love like true crime podcasts and true crime. Not that everyone doesn't, but it's like, 
it's that I want to understand it so I know how to avoid it or why it happens and how I can, you know. Well, and I, I want to chime in here too because all three of you, I, I um, but the three of you are talking a lot about kind of the therapy that is gained through writing and horror. And I, I also want to shout out that these creative works that you all do also provide therapy for the viewer. Bly uh, Manor, as a queer person, watching Jamie through her kind of process through the entire show and those beautiful monologues that were created resonated in my soul. And it was this beautiful cathartic moment through the lens of horror that I felt attached to. And then we get to Midnight Mass as well. And this kind of juxtaposition about the demands of religiosity and the demands of spirituality and where this cross section is as a, a post-Christian. Again, that just filled my soul with wonder and awe and I just I'm intrigued at how you guys kind of develop that process, these beautiful monologues that mean so much to me. Where did they come from? How did they get from point A to point B? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I know from my episode personally in um in Bly, which was episode six, um, the Moonflower and the um about Henry and Charlotte, uh that episode, uh that Jamie does have a quite a long monologue in that episode and a lot of that uh mike wrote um but parts of it i wrote and that her talking about growing up like her kind of origin story about the first half of it to the first three quarters that's all almost ripped out of my life so oh my gosh yeah so it but it feels it's amazing to write to write it and then see it it's almost like an exorcism exorcism where you see it on the screen and then hearing from you that like I'm not saying that this is the monologue that you're talking about, but if it, but if, if it was something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's just uniting and there's, I don't know, there's something beautiful about that and something again, really cathartic. I feel like I'm saying that word too much, but it is. No, but that episode was my life as well. You know, I was raised very religious and was convinced that if the more religious I was and the more I went with other people's beliefs and, and methods of living life, I would be happy. And there just comes a breaking point and you see that with Jamie. And it, it takes definitely a horror turn, but the catharsis only for you just echoed through through me again as a queer person. So one, thank you for providing that for you know the queer community to to experience oh, that and and to have the diversity shown. Oh. Um, but it was just it was beautiful. There's there's no other word. Yeah, like um, I guess for some of the stuff that I got to put in there. Um, uh, for Midnight Mass, a lot of my rewrite work was um, kind of focused on on Father Paul's monologues, his homilies. Um, and those are a fusion of, you know, the writer that came before me, me, and then Mike. Um, but the marching order on it and what I really got to tap into as, as someone who was an altar boy and who did go to church and who, you know, did have priests that I respect, even though I'm, I'm no longer part of the church. Um, I wanted to write a, a priest that I would have wanted, you know, uh, to begin with anyway. By the time you get to his full metal jacket, you know, God's army speech, he's blind faith has been hijacked by something else at that point. But, um... Leading up to that, I, being able to write the write in those homilies and sort of get into that idea of you know the um, 
the older we get, or the more we know, the more brittle we become, the less we bend. Like, I believe that. Um, that, that was something I, I sort of added and still believe to this day that, you know, the more we know, the less we bend, the more easy we break um, when the wind comes, when change comes. And that that made it into one of the homilies really um, was really gratifying to hear. Um, and uh, when you have somebody like Hamish Linklater bringing his own subtext to it, and it is full of realization and pain and regret, um, it elevates it. So it's, it's not just the three writers who wrote the monologue, it's also the performer adding a layer that, uh, that brings something to life. And um, yeah, uh, you couldn't ask for better than, than Hamish and Sam Sloyan and you know, so many of the actors that we, we have back, like Rahul Kohli and um, yeah, you know, just all, all the stalwarts from Intrepid. And it, it, it's beautiful in a sense that it kind of transcends even genre as a whole. You're speaking to humanity you know, through the lens of horror, but the lens doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, yeah. It's just, uh, again, I'm fangirling because what you two have done is just so important. Oh, oh thank you. I appreciate thank that. Uh, that I, yeah, you know, right back at you. We're all on the same journey. And it, it, yeah. most of the time it's very confusing and very frightening. And, uh, and so we, we, we put it in scripts and we put it on screen to let everybody know that, yes, it's confusing and yes, it's frightening, but no, you aren't alone. Yeah. We're all in this together. Yep. Yeah. It all, and it the musical up. taught us that we're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I, I've been kind of curious about is, you know, so with uh, Hill House and Bly, you know, this is, you know, they're, they're both kind of loose adaptations of, you know, other people's work. And so I'm just kind of curious of, of, you know, what the balancing act was like as far as, you know, being involved in, in the, the writing and, you know, kind of thinking of, okay, how much of this is, you know, the story that is, you know, kind of the departing thing or, and, you know, like what, I guess, how, how you prioritize, like what still stays true to the original versus how it, it you know, departs and things like that. Um, just, you know, what, what sort of conversations went into that or things like that? Oh, yeah, plenty. Um, a lot of it's thematic. You know, uh, you, you want to make sure that you're hitting on the same themes that the source material hit on and that you're hopefully if you're if you're lucky, you can stumble on something illuminating a little bit new about it. Um, with Bly, at least, you know, we looked at Turn of the Screw as kind of our bookend. But then we came in every day and each writer would kind of deliver a book report story time of a different Henry James story. And then we started to try to figure out ways that we could take each of those stories and integrate them into this season in kind of a seamless, well, not seamless, in, into a braid that we could tie off at the end. So, you know, you've got Danny and Jamie, whose arc is essentially the beast in the jungle. Uh, then you've got, um, uh, what is it, the, the romance of certain old clothes, which we turned into our keystone. Uh, you know, it's... it's it's our big reveal in our bottle episode that basically explains the big bad of the entire season, the thing lurking beneath. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of pulled from anywhere and everywhere we could from Henry James, uh, things that we could find that were applicable, but we had to leave a lot behind because, you know, a large body of work in a short amount of time. Um, so, yeah, uh, Becca, you want to you jump in here and save me? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, yes. Um, no, I'm not gonna say, but yes. Uh, no, you're right. And like the altar of the dead, I think that was episode five. It, 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 yes, it is. Our house 
it was a little different because um, Mike had come in with a lot of the story already kind of like what he wanted. There was a pretty good story Bible or like season outline um, that we worked from that stayed, I would say, fairly-ish true. Um, and again, like Jamie was saying, it was really just the, them the, the thematic elements and then some story beats, like Easter eggy kind of stuff um, for Hill House. And then, <clears throat> yeah, Bly was... Bly had a lot more of just general Henry James stuff. And it's interesting what can happen um, just based on. So like Jamie was saying, there was one one day we had to all bring in a love story because that season's theme was love um, and everyone told a love story. And then we would write on the board like, OK, what is what is this love story really about? And the thing that we kept coming to was like sacrifice. Like what is love? Sacrifice kept showing up again and again. Um, but you know, I, I had picked one story and I started reading it. I'm like, I'm not feeling this. So then I, I said, altar of the dead. That's an interesting one. So, um, I like, I like the title of that. So I read the story and then came in and did the report the next day. Um, and it ended up working a lot, a lot better in it and being a little bit of a, um, a roadmap for episode five, I believe it was. Uh, but it's funny if I had just continued with the other story I'd read, it would have been something else. It's, you know, it's all so almost, I don't know, I won't say kismet, but um yeah there's 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 definitely a, a a sort of um i don't know i kind of ran out of steam on that one but no. i hope i get where i'm going no it's interesting that you know uh, in terms of adaptation so much of blind manor was loose adaptation of henry james yeah. with the exception of the certain romance of old clothes or the romance of certain old clothes i always mix it up um that was actually pretty much a one-to-one -one adaptation that you know 50 minutes right there is that short story that very little was changed um so it's uh yeah it's it's interesting um you you hope to stumble upon things that feel like kismet right that feel like they just fit and uh and with Bly, we i think we we found some really interesting interesting things to play on and uh and tying it all into i think you guys kind of hit on this before the the innate fear of losing ourselves to senility to dementia to death we made even you know the process of the afterlife basically a 100 year erosion of the self um, that was the that, that's the most horrific part of bly manor that i feel like people don't talk about enough is that we're like essentially being a ghost is you have 100 years to forget everything you were and then you'll just walk around as a husk like that's yeah, the most horrific right. show we've yeah. ever done <laughs> That's why the lady in the lake, you know, she had no kind feet. Of the irony of it all, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People are like, Bly's not as scary. And I'm like, it is if you sit down and think about it. <laughs> You're like, well, existentially. Like, existentially, Bly is horrifying in a way that the others are kind. Like, Hill House, you're pretty much yourself in that house. Like, you just you chill. You your family. Yeah, you just move in. I'm like, great, yeah. kill me in Hill House. Wonderful. Like, you know, I'll just... Hang out with people. The only horror there is if you don't like the people you're hanging out with. In Bly, it's like you stay there and you erode. Um, yeah, it's so weird, you know. Uh, <laughs> and midnight Mass, it's quick and easy. You get eaten by a vampire. Uh, yeah, and then you <laughs> pop back up, and and then all of a sudden you are, you know, potentially a threat to other people that you love. That's also really horrific. Uh, which is, and the you know, sun rises. Yeah, that if you stick around for it, yeah, the sunrise evens it all out. Um, it all comes out in the wash. Um, too soon. That one scene. Too soon. Uh, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. It's a pretty scene. You know, I just I just rewatched it with uh, my wife, who who didn't watch it when I watched Midnight Mass the first time, and 
just the whole time i was just you know watching her watch it and come up with theory you know watching her come up with theories and it was a delight i have to say one of one of the best things i've done with my wife is just watch her watch midnight mass yeah mike mike would be thrilled to hear that that's been his baby for such a long time um but yeah you know it's it's him really just um spreading his wings and and you know running with an original story uh which mike does a lot of adapting and adaptations you know but this one was was really pulled from his life in a beautiful way. It was a really honor to be a part of that one. Yeah, I got the honor of the three. It's my favorite by far. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take that, Becca. Ha ha. I heard it. I heard it. Becca, I do have a few questions for you directly, if you don't mind. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, first and foremost, I, I am curious, you know, as a, as a woman in this community, the horror community can be pretty tight. Of course, we have some stereotypes that we're trying to overcome. Mm-hmm. Have you encountered any of that in your career or any advice for young girls trying to, to break it into this community? I have to say, I actually have not encountered any of that, but I did start anonymously online. Um, and then when I, and my pen name was like an initial, so initial, so it wasn't really obvious what I was or, or whatnot. I haven't really noticed, um, no, any, anything for me, but I would say, um, advice to, 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 to girls or women that want to write in horror. I mean, it, it would be the same to any, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't, I don't think I have, I have heard, uh, I have a couple of friends who did have a little bit of trouble getting read, um, because they were women, but not, uh, but not myself. And I don't know, maybe it's a, hor- it's horrible advice to say, don't telegraph that you're a woman, but I guess that's, don't do that. But I just keep going, girl. I mean, we need, you, we need to, we're just, I don't know. It, it's one of those kind of things where I wish I had better advice. I just really haven't encountered anything personally. Um, you know, it's, which is encouraging yeah, to, to yeah, hear that, yeah, you know, that no. yeah. there are, you know, it, it is becoming less and less common to have people encounter issues. Yeah, which is great. I think the, the biggest thing I would say is that people usually assume that I'm um, a man <laughs> uh, as far as like my online writing and, um, and that I, that's, I am almost never hear anything else. And I don't really bother to correct people because I, it just get exhausting to go into comments or videos every time and be like, actually, I'm a lady. So I don't. Um, but yeah, people tend to assume that. I'm not sure why. I don't know if there are less women in horror. I, I suppose maybe there are. Um, but, you know. I mean. We're out there. <laughs> I, I, I find that that so funny, too, because like a lot of the, you know, grandmasters of horror are, you know, Shirley Jackson and um you know mary Mary shelley and and yeah like these you know incredible writers that honestly you know like i i I think shirley jackson's probably the one of the finest writers that's ever lived period and so it's just like where is this coming from but but yeah like you you do hear that that it keeps popping up of oh well women can't write horror have you read shirley jackson (laughs) exactly 
Well, and to echo Nathaniel, I think that it's encouraging to hear that you haven't had to encounter a lot of that. I do feel the horror community, just based on our interactions with guests we've had on the show or, or through social media, yeah. uh, we do kind of rally around the downtrodden and the fallen, because that is our genre, so to speak. So that, that's great to hear. I mean, and it could be a lot of, too, that I feel fairly insulated with, like, the Flanagan camp. Um, Mike works with a lot of female writers. I think I've been in a couple rooms where more more women than men um, of his. So I, it might just be too that I I keep working with you know Intrepid and they're and they're really really good about that. And shifting gears real quick, tell us a little bit about your creepy pasta and how it exploded and and how that has been. Oh, that yeah. Um, so uh, I. Um, started writing on, uh, for people, uh, for Redditors, you know, the no sleep board. Um, I started writing um, short stories on no sleep in 2013, maybe something like that. Um, and it was an amazing place to uh, like workshop stuff. If any of you horror writers ever want that, um, because it's all based on like upvote, downvote kind of comments. You can get anonymous um, criticism or praise and uh, the upvote, downvote. I mean, it's not perfect, but it does tell you like, this is popular, people like this, or, you know, this is, no one wants to read about this kind of, kind of thing. Uh, and I, I had written there for a couple of years. Um, a couple stories went viral. Um, and, you know, uh, it's actually how I got my job in screenwriting um, was because I, I got popular online and um, Mike Flanagan saw it and, and and plucked me out of the ether and brought me out here um, to write on his shows. <clears throat> but um, I miss it and I love it. I love writing creepypasta. It's one of my favorite ways to write anything. It's short, it's, you know, you can write whatever you want and then you put it on the internet and it's like, it, it has an audience, whether it's like three people or thousands or tens of thousands of people. It's again, it's that that exorcism of I, I don't know how it's, what it's like for other writers, but if I have a good story in my head or great characters, I'm like, I got to get this out of me or it's going to drive me crazy. So I have to write it and then post it somewhere where I know, you know, like someone someday could read it and then it's out and I'm done. And I don't ever have to read it again if I don't want. I think it's back to that kind of like therapy thing. Um, but that's what I love about creepypastas is like you can write as many as you want. You can write whatever you want. You won't get notes on it. You post it online and 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 see what happens. It's it's a it's amazing. It's it's kind of like you used to have to go to school or know somebody or I'm not really sure how people used to get into screenwriting, um, but the internet has made it so that I mean I think even like Justin Bieber got famous off YouTube. I just mean you know you get things that the general public can like have a say in what they get to see, what they promote, what they want. You know, I just find well, that. and I've I love this idea of creepy pasta kind of being the new campfire story, right? Yes. Um, yes. To the extent, you know, there's this mythological creature known as the the tulpa, where if a certain amount of people believe in it enough, it becomes real. And you have stuff like Slenderman, which tragically did become real for some people. But the the power that is behind these Reddit stories and this creepy pasta should not be overlooked at all. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. I just I just finished the novel Pen Pal, which also started as a creepypasta. Oh, man, I've read that one. Yeah, Pen Pal's brutal. Oh, oh I, I consumed it in a day, and that is very odd for me to read like that. But 
it, it just was breathtaking that this was an internet story before ever it became a book. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like it was a Reddit story too. I think it was a no sleep story. Yep. Was it? It was. That's Jason's that's story, right? Yes. Yeah. That's great. That was like in five parts. That is a great creepy pasta. I agree. Yeah. I have the, the audiobook yeah. for my boyfriend when we go up camping. I'm quite excited to have him listen to it as we slowly ascend into the mountains. That's horrible. <laughs> why, would, why, though? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one thing I, I love about, you know, this kind of, of, you know, viral storytelling and stuff like that is is just, like, how often, you know, things just get past still, you know, word of mouth and all that. In fact, uh, with Baraska um i knew about it not just you know on my own actually um just a few months ago um like just before uh you know we we were able to you know start getting things you know moving towards you know uh having you guys on the podcast and all that uh i have a, a student i'm a high school teacher and yeah. she was just like oh hey have you read uh because yeah, we were talking about different, you know, creepy stories. And so she's like, have you read Baraska? And so she, like, made me, like, down, you know, uh, pull it up. And, and, like, I was, like, reading it at school. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it was great because then, um, you know, I was able to shoot her an email, uh, you know, once I found out that you were the author of that and go, hey, I'm going to have the author of that on. And she's just like, what? That's so Aww. cool. So I love that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just kind of fun to, to see how. You know, it, it just uh, can get into every part of society, you know, just, yeah, I'm at work and then suddenly I have a student telling me to read a story and then, you know, a, a month and a half later or something, I, I suddenly have the author uh, on my podcast. So, hey, you know, win. <laughs> and it's so, it's interesting when you write stuff, you don't really see where it goes. If you, if you don't go online and like, like look where it's posted or whatever, for all you know, it's you know, stuck on Reddit and nowhere else. So it's it's fun to see when things just like burn through the internet, be they stories or songs or or whatnot. Um, it's fascinating because because you do again, it's the whole thing of disconnection. You don't really feel that connected to it when you put it online, and who knows what's going to happen after that? You know, you might you might never know what happens after that. Yeah, it could could be just unknown, or it could suddenly be the new viral hit. Yeah. Yep. And and actually, with Baraska, I'm just curious of, of like what was the process of of like adapting it to a podcast like you know because it was you know adapting your own work as opposed to you know working on on someone else's project. Yeah, um, it it was uh, actually really easy because I had been through so many versions of Baraska by then. I don't really know what it is. I've written a lot of, of short story horror and I don't know what it is about Baraska, but that's, um, that's one that people really tend to, 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 to land with people. Um, so I've like, I've written it in a novel. I've edited it into one of my, um, uh, short story collections. I, uh, had, and then I adapted it for the podcast. And so I know this story so very well then, and I had already had experience in writing podcasts, um, mm -hmm. quite a bit of it. So. For me, it was almost, it was really fun because I know the original story. So I, was, I looked at the original story and I'm like, okay, I can break this up um, and then I can flesh out what I've always wanted to flesh out, like more character work, more scary jump scares, like more depth, more twists, more all of that. 
and um, and then put it into a script, which I find podcast scripts really fun and easy to write because it's all dialogue and dialogue is the best thing. I don't know what, how you feel, Jamie, but dialogue is my favorite, favorite thing to write in a script. So when I get to do a, a podcast, which is basically all dialogue and like special effect or, you know, uh, and sound effects, it's, it's like being at Disneyland. So to ha- take a story that I knew really, really well, and then getting to put that into, you know, a fully, uh, di- you know, all dialogue podcast was amazingly fun. Um, so much so that we went back and we did it for, we did, we made a season two. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's really, it's, and, and it, it, it makes, it forces you to, to problem solve. Like a lot of things are very, feel very cinematic and you're like, how can I get this across without, you know, without the benefit of, of a screen, without a camera, I think you have to do it all, you know, through dialogue, like literally all of it through dialogue. There's not much plot that you can advance through like special effects, which was a huge problem on the Batman Unburied podcast because, you know, he's, a, he's Batman. <laughs> he has yeah, a lot of writing to do. Punch sound, punch sound, punch sound, punch sound. Yes, exa- exactly. And, and, I, and I, I wrote it with um, uh, uh, two, two other writers and, uh, and David Goyer. And um, it, they, they were all, they're the big, they, they were the Batman fans and I was the podcast person, writer in the room. And so they the, sometimes come up with these like great big sequences. And I'm like, I'm sorry, guys, we can't do it. <laughs> they're, they're, that'll be like three minutes of no, we won't know what's happening. It's, you know what I mean? It's, you, can't, you, can't, you can't show a fight in a podcast. Yeah, just, just three minutes of scuffling sounds isn't anything. Exactly. Yeah. You got to get creative. So shifting gears a little bit, um, we have some questions we wanted to kind of pose to both of you about modern horror, because a lot of the writing you've done has been, you know, within the last five years. So you're on the the precipice of this modern horror, which I think we've got some amazing stuff. Uh, Hereditary, Midsummer, Anything for Jackson, a lot of these awesome movies that have come out recently, Parasite, of course. So what do you feel that modern horror does very, very well? nowadays compared to say the 90s the 80s the 70s wow i am out of my depth um, <laughs> oh no um, sorry we should have given yeah. you this question prior sorry. no no that's cool uh honestly i uh um yeah i i don't feel up to speaking to this question i i i kind of take it all as one you know i mean obviously that a lot of the 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 things that come out today speak to problems today, but you know, in the same way that things in the seventies probably spoke very keenly to things that were happening in the seventies. Um, Parasite, for instance, you know, it tells a story about um, class and inequality that um, obviously that's a problem that's existed for a long time, but it, it does it in such an immediate and recognizable way um, and in a heightened and kind of, you know, uh, unrecognizable way, which is that idea of, you know, literally having uh, the people on the on the in the 99 percent living in the basement of the one percent. Right. <laughs> it's um, secretly and, and kind of and yeah. And parasitically. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it. What does today do better than the 70s? I, I'm not sure that they do anything better. I just think that we, we tell each other stories that are immediate to our time. And I think that's a beautiful answer, Jamie. I love that. <laughs> sure, yeah. 
That's all I got. Uh, Becca? <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my answer is very similar. It's like we can take his house, for example. We can make that today. Would we be able to make that in the 80s? Would people watch it? Would would people green light it? I don't know. That's a great point. Probably not. Really... <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, no, yeah, no. It's, 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 I apologize for interrupting. That is a great point you just made, Becca. It probably would not have been greenlit in yeah, the 80s. I mean, yeah. I think you could just get a little bit more like pointed and, and um, specific with stories and really get at things that horror in the 70s and 80s didn't really get at. I, I don't know. That's that's kind of all I've got on that. Yeah, so, so yeah, so so more diverse voices and all of that. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. It's yeah. Um, I mean, good horror is good horror, no matter you know when it's from. But sure. but we do have so many more you know filmmakers and writers and creators able to you know have an audience and and yeah you know get and a tell, budget <laughs> and tell these very scary stories that have existed as long as you know the Christian demonology stories that we've been you know exploring since God knows when. You know, his house is a prime example of that, this demonic entity that is rooted in African history. There, there's something beautiful and poignant to that nowadays. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think you guys nailed it. Yeah, I, I rescind my answer today. What we do better is diversity and inclusivity. Uh, yeah, man, that was a, that was like low hanging fruit, and I totally missed it. Uh, that right. makes perfect sense. So let's talk about what we don't do very well in modern horror. Is there anything you you have to say to that? Oh, you're gonna send me on a 20 minute rant about cell phones. Do oh, it, do, do it. it, go, do Becca, it, go. <laughs> No, it's just like, this is, I'm so glad that I, that's everything in the woods because cell phones, man, you have to write around them so often. You it's do. Like, it's, oh it's God. We want to be disconnected, right? That's what's scary, being disconnected from our fellow man. And then you put a cell phone in someone's hand, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. The big thing that people do with the cell phones nowadays seems to be, they're always like, and then the killer hijacked the phone and they the killer starts texting and i'm like this killer just became far more lame in my mind it's like sending them like memes like i'm gonna kill you and i'm like this is uh. so yeah like it in, oh this episode of creep show that i wrote on like the first thing that happens in the first 40 seconds is one character chucks a cell phone out the door and locks it like isolating them both you have to do something like uh, that's i think why we keep running into so many period pieces 80s and 90s you know back when these cell phones were like zach morris sized so that we don't have to use them (laughs) and it's it's really interesting too to look at a movie like blair witch which is definitely kind of before the rise of the internet where they were able to create this weird mythos that everyone believed in so when you went to go see the movie you were scared not only because of the film but because you thought that this legend was oh yeah yeah kind of and you couldn't just pull out your cell phone and check it exactly yeah you couldn't you know spoil the ending within a matter of seconds it Mm -hmm. yeah i I agree i've never really thought about the cell phone issue before but it's I'm thinking one. back to all of the scary movies I've watched in the last few weeks, and it's like, yeah, they always have to deal with the issue of the cell phone. <laughs> yeah, it's that's... a lifeline, and you have to take people's lifelines from them. Yeah, getting even in uh, take... even in Midnight Mass, we had to knock out the cell tower. You know, <laughs> otherwise yeah. we we didn't have a final act. You know, because then they just call the land and they're like, hey, pick, come pick us up. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, I want an ocean Uber, please. Exactly. Uh, you know, hello, police. Uh, you know, it's. You, yeah. Jamie, you've ruined me because I'll never watch a movie now without noticing, like, okay, when's the cell phone going to. You know, it, it, I think that we should just. We're trying too hard with it. If anytime we need cell phones to go away, we just send a character named Sturge, played by Matt Bedell, to go cut the wires on the cell phone tower, I will be well pleased. They'll be like, the yeah, that, doesn't matter what story it is. If they're just like, all right, call Sturge and then just cut to him cutting the thing. I'm, I'm satisfied. That'll, that'll work. Take out the cell towers. That guy's got a satellite. I, now you're fucked. I, I feel Sorry. like the self-deprecation you did earlier on, you, you'll be the perfect role for Sturge here, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have the beard for it. Yeah. I, I would need to gain about, uh, oh wow, about three more versions of myself to conglomerate into one human. Matt Bedell's a big guy. Um, like, uh, not like fat, I mean just like built. Uh, speaking of built, that is his character name in the next thing that we put him in. It's built. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, Matt, Matt Bedell is, uh, yeah, he's ready to go, man. Um, and yeah, he, I'm sure he'd don the beard and cut a cell phone tower down any day of the week. Just give him a call, you know? Yeah. For screenwriters, if you need to get rid of a cell phone, Jamie has got you. You've <laughs> got, got your this. guy. <laughs> in the scene. <laughs> just just so like insert, move... like like you just have a, a pre-written thing, just copy-paste into an email. Yeah, just throw that in your script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be hilarious. A movie going public would have no idea what's going on. Just every move every horror movie starts with that. Like yep. in the credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just start, starts with someone staring at their phone and being like, oh, no reception today, huh? And then they're like, yep, guess it's a cell phone dry spell. Who knows how long this could last? Maybe two and a half hours. Maybe. Always, on the podcast, we always are blaming our technical difficulties on Pazuzu, the demon from The Exorcist. Uh-huh. But I feel like now it's going to be Sturge, Nathaniel. Sturge is at it again. Yeah, Sturge is doing his thing. What was the one from um, uh, from Hereditary? Uh, it's Payman like, that Payman. I think is the Payman. lamest demon ever. All yeah, right, so like, let's talk about Payman. Um, the, the lesser key of Solomon Payman is vastly different from the Hereditary. So Payman <laughs> is like, what, the number eight demon? Like, So first of all, <laughs> it's not even like Lucifer we're talking about here. It's like, hey, guys, it's Payman. The other seven were busy. And the plot is, is that Payman, A, doesn't want to be a girl and doesn't want a peanut allergy. That's the movie. <laughs> There's that there's that call tree, you know, that we used to have in the nineties when you would join a sports team. Lucifer's on top and you get to the very bottom and there's payment right next to <laughs> Payman's big wish is to be a like nerdy teenage boy who can eat a payday bar. That's his whole <laughs> motivation. I I can't. I mean, he he's the demon of secrets. He just wants to get it. What is the deal with payday? Well, think about it too. Like in, in the moment where he's crowned, like they give it to him. They're like, "Hey, payman, welcome. It's Burger King. You can have it your way." They crown him. Uh, his like followers, like some of them are naked, some of them are in track suits. It's like not, they didn't get the memo. They're like, "Were we doing naked? Were we doing track suits? What was our what was our plan here, guys?" And payman's like, "It's cool." <laughs> Payment's number eight. He doesn't care if you're naked or tracksuited. He's just glad you showed up. <laughs> it's, that, it's the cell it's phone like, wait, issue. I have a cult? <laughs> There's a cult that worships 
Me? Exactly. <laughs> Payment surprise. You see the look in that kid's face after he possessed him? He's like, really? Oh, you guys. It is. It's a It's a birthday at Burger King at the end of that thing. It's... Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he had to you know go all the way to Park City, Utah to get a, a cult, but... I think he was just more surprised that all of these elderly individuals kept up the demon cult and were able to get this far. Yeah, and I I, I need to rewind this before uh, Ari Aster, you know, blackballs me. It's yeah, a great movie, yeah. uh, and uh, it's Sorry. really good. It's thematically Sorry, resonant. It also has my favorite pun in horror of all time, and that's when an actor whose name is Gabriel Byrne spontaneously combusts on screen. Um, yeah, I lost it. I I laughed out loud, and I was like, "I hope that was intentional, because that's hilarious." To be fair, Ari Aster, if you're listening, the Screen Kings are big fans of Hereditary. We're we're also known as a Hereditary fan podcast. So. There you go. Yeah, yeah. One of the best scenes in horror. I swear to God, that driving home scene. We all know that scene. That oh scene God, yeah. And mm-hmm. in the best way possible. And Tony Collette's and, uh, amazing. She's yeah, yeah. she's so good in like the the kind of group scenes, you know, where she's kind of and talking as a about self-proclaimed mm. demonologist. The way they actually portrayed like the cult and the possession and everything, it was very authentic to what you find in like legit historical grimoires. So, thanks, Ari. Thank you, Ari. So weird choice of of demon. Yes, weird. Agreed. Number eight, man. Number eight. It's a dream. Even Send me in Yelzebub or something. Come on. Uh, overworked. Give it. Give us some some Moloch or some Lilith. That's what we want to see. He wanted the young hotness, not the old and busted. Let me give you a new demon. Young hot <laughs> demon. <laughs> All right. So to kind of move on to wrapping it up here. Uh, I don't want this to end, and we're going to be best friends from now on. For, for, <laughs> uh, but do you guys have any works that you would consider your favorite, whether that's an episode that you've worked on, a story you've written, anything that stands out that you want to talk about? Wow. Uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> um, I think we're both really proud of Usher. Yeah. Which I'm excited you guys all to see oh my god That's i cannot wait them. yeah it's different than bly and hill house very and awesome. yeah very different and that's all that's all i'll say because uh, i don't want to get in trouble um uh but yeah that one i i'm also a really big fan of the one that um uh, becca mentioned earlier uh the things we see in the woods becca wrote the Me short too. story which you can find online which is beautiful and then we adapted it into a screenplay which is also beautiful and uh, that's one that we've been um becca and i have been toiling to find a home for for a while um and i, I hope that it does one day get made and get made right and uh i would love to see that one see the light of day yeah, that's a re- that's a really beautiful story, and it has a lot of Jamie in it, and I and I love that about it, especially. It just feels very authentic, and I don't know, even the ending. Ah, I can't even talk about it. Hopefully, it'll get made, and you guys can see it one day. But the, yeah, <laughs> one day, one day, I'll, I will start praying to payment post haste. <laughs> and and then tell him to push it up the line of hell because eight. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I think he can, he can do some social climbing, probably. Like, get some meow meow beans yeah. and work his way up, you know? <laughs> meow meow beans, that's twice in one day. I know, I'm going to keep dropping the meow meow beans <laughs> reference. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that reference so much. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I'm friends with Asmodeus. We'll, we'll make it work. Yeah. Or Asmodeus, Yay. however the pronunciation is. I feel like that's a, one of the bad guys from Diablo 3. Am I right? Probably. I love Diablo 3. You're talking about one of my favorite video games. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so fun. Yeah. yeah. Nathaniel, any final questions you want to ask these two beautiful humans? Um, well, just before, at the end of every episode, we always just uh, mention uh, like a way that we have been staying spooky. So I'm going to ask you that, but I guess I can go first. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I have been, you know, I, I made my wife watch all of Midnight Mass and just delighted at her uh, theories the entire time. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's uh, the big spooky thing I've been doing lately is just, just that. How about you, Max? For me, I've, I've been reading on your recommendation after I finished Pen Pal. I've been reading The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Yes. Um, and it's kind of a tough read for me as a, a gay man who has a daughter. Um, I, I've been able to get through the first portion of the book, and it's going to be a tough read for me. It's horrific and terrifying and spooky in all of the right ways. Uh, however, I recently got over COVID, and I self-cared by watching horror upon horror upon horror upon horror uh, and there's a shutter original called vicious fun which i had a blast with it's about a young boy who works for a horror magazine similar to like a fangoria stumbles upon a self-help group for serial killers and the hilarity and gore that ensues uh, highly recommend that to anyone who likes kind of that pop horror slasher gore type of a film Ooh. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> How about you two? Have have y'all been uh, in, indulging in any horror media lately or anything like that to stay spooky? Sure, yeah. Like, um, uh, maybe this isn't, you know, like really, really recently, a couple months ago, but I watched uh, Caveat, which was great. Um, if, uh, if you're looking for a, a good indie, that's really I've, disturbing. I have that in my queue. It's worth it. Um, and then also Relic. Okay. Uh, uh, Relic been, is excellent I, if you want a, a look at something that sort of delves into the horror of dementia. Yes, you recommended that to me. It was excellent. See, Nathaniel and I did not love Relic, so we're going to have to have you back and talk about that. I, I <laughs> you know, I can... I can certainly lean that way if it weren't for the last uh, if it weren't for the last thirty seconds, which stuck the landing so perfectly in terms of hereditary mental illness that um, it, for me, just that tableau of the three of them lying in bed together of uh, mother, daughter, and daughter, um, yeah, you know, like and, and watching her peel the skin away, and yeah, that. That got me. Um, it, it was actually weirdly. It was what I, it was what I wanted from the end of a movie called Hereditary was to uh, actually lean into hereditary mental illness as opposed to demonology. Um, I thought that the metaphor in Hereditary for the first hour was genius, and then the latter half let me down because it was essentially kind of like Rosemary's Baby, and I I lost theme. Whereas Relic 
begins as a bonkers horror movie that then ends entirely steeped in the theme. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, um, sorry, Ari Aster. I love you. You're great. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, uh, it's weird. Anyway, that's, that's my two cents. Yep. I'm descending the soap box and I am dismantling it and I am putting it away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been staying creepy. I don't, I discovered uh, about this month something called like backrooms. You guys heard of like the back. I think it's a meme. It's a creepypasta. It's also a subreddit. It's kind of terrifying, but nobody. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe back what a backroom is, but it's not, it's very. I should have started this because now I don't know how to describe it. I would say just look it up. Backrooms are like, did anybody watch uh, Severance on Apple? Oh, yeah. I love Severance incredible. so much. Yeah. Okay, great. You know, like that feeling of being like utter dread, like a room of just like that office in the in the basement kind of thing like that. That is like a, a 10 and uh, backrooms would be like a, a hundred. It's very. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It's it's just it's more like the subreddit for example is just photos, but they're all really really creepy. It's kind of like back rooms are what you would picture in like the basement of a portal to hell kind of thing. Oh wow! They're just really creepy pictures. So I don't, that's... you gotta send me this because how I've been getting through work lately is I've been YouTubing uh, authentic like ghost video things or scary ring doorbell captures or stuff like this <laughs> yeah. and I'm, i am terrifying myself at work but it's making the day go by so quickly and i love it so this sounds right up my alley it is it's awful i mean it's inspired a lot for me i'm like i don't know how to write this but i'm gonna use it nice yes also severance is an underrated horror masterpiece yes, it is. it's fantastic Oh, uh, Nathaniel, we got to get you to watch it and do an episode on it because it's mind blowing. Okay. Have you seen I'm it? sold. I didn't ask you. You'll be sold after the first scene. Like, yeah. my God, what a bold opening. Um, the lead is Adam Scott, Nathaniel, and you love him. It's true. Adam Scott we've seen. So weird, Adam Scott. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a. Oh, he does a great job in that show. He's so yeah. good. It's. It, it's one of those shows that after every episode you're asking yourself, wait, what the fuck? And then you do it all over again, and then again, and again, and then the series finale, and you're just left I just right. want season two right now. I just, Me too. Yeah. It's, all, it's, like, it's the implications of that show. It's like the oh. philosophical question it poses. That's mm-hmm. the scariest. Absolutely. Thing. Absolutely. It's, it's the sit down and think about it scary, right? It's well, like. I'm glad you didn't think of it. Yep. The longer you sit with it, the worse it gets. And exactly. it just gets then, more frightening. <laughs> and then you go to work the next day and you're like, oh my God, go am I severed? <laughs> Would I want to be severed? Is the, am I severed? Oh, yeah. existen- existential fear. <sighs> okay, I'm definitely sold. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, I, we, we've probably taken up way too much of your time, even <laughs> though it's been an utter delight. Um, where can people find you online or you know things like that oh, i think i'm on twitter at rebecca.klingle i think i don't really have much social media to plug okay that's fair 
Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter as either uh, J Flanagan eighty one or Jamie Flanagan eighty one. It's one or the other. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm there. I I like to talk about Arcane and Station Eleven, which I will plug on every podcast I do because I think that they're amazing. Um, so, Arcane. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Arcane's oh freaking brilliant. The first three episodes of that are as fine a sibling tragedy as I have ever come across. The um, last episode with Jinx and that rocket careening towards the oh end. Oh man, was... it's it's all about it's all about him sitting in that chair saying, Don't cry, you're perfect. And I'm just like, Oh, now I'm crying. We're all crying. Oh my god. Oh uh, my god. Oh, uh, it's so good. Uh Silco, the guy who voices Silco, who begins kind of two-dimensionally they kind of bait and switch you in the first two episodes to be like this guy doesn't you know he's, he's just there and he has a creepy eye beginning of episode three he gives that monologue about drowning uh, where he says that drowning is a story of opposites there is peace and water and the idea that you can just let all of your cares float away but then there's another part of you that is lit up with madness that just fights and fights and fights and i'm just like and, and then he says and then you're posed with a question um and, what, oh, God, what was the question? Oh, have you had enough? And it was just so simple. And the dichotomy of that character who goes from, you know, scary-eyed bad guy to surrogate father who actually goes out on the most compassionate note of don't uh-huh. cry, you're perfect. Like, what a character. Uh, spoilers for Arcane, but go check it out. It's, it's worth it. Well, and I think that theme runs through the entire show. If you look at characters like Jace, who are these paladins and these boy scouts who absolutely when they're faced to make tough decisions they murder absolutely um, yeah i mean he you oh, know for as much so as he good. hates vander he becomes vander you know it's, it's a, exactly yeah. and as much as he hates silco he's willing to do exactly what silco has done mm-hmm. anyway uh, arcane <laughs> arcane go, go uh, okay so i'm gonna slide into your dms jamie and we're gonna <laughs> chat about arcane <laughs> Because I know maybe three people who appreciate it like I do. I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> and on that totally non-horror but still really good media note, um, <laughs> I guess we should uh, wrap this up. Uh, thank you again. It's been such a delight. And yeah, we definitely might you know harass you about coming back in the future. I don't know when... I don't know, Midnight Club and House of Usher comes out and all that, and I don't know. Just, just don't be too surprised if, if I email you again and say, please, please come back. <laughs> please well, do. This yeah. is fun. Thank you, guys. It's been a blast. We can't talk about this stuff by ourselves, so it's great. Totally. Well, excellent. Thank you both. Um, and I guess just on that note, I'll just say, stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You could also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.